Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Philip Coover of Clark Hill PLC. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric, now national, used to be just Chicago-centric, commercial real estate podcast which presents real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated problems, current developments, trends, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of the real estate business and law. And that's where I'm going to stop my normal spiel because today we have Todd Stofflet of KIG CRE. And today it is a mixture of the real estate business, legal business, data analytics, and technology. I first became interested in KIG CRE and what they're doing, reading a BizNow article in September of 2017, which was entitled The Recipe for a Modern Brokerage Firm. And what KIG has done is they've hired data, a data analytics scientist as well as market analysts in order to help provide better information in order to give to their clients when making investment decisions. This is something that I'm particularly interested in. I think that there's a changing tide in the legal industry as well as the real estate industry. And actually, I gave a speech in April of this year uh, at the Art Institute uh, for DePaul University at a symposium. And my, my topic was about the changing tides of the legal and the real estate industry. And I can talk your ear off about it. But um, Essentially, I just think that the old way of doing things in both industries is going to be quickly replaced by a new way of doing things. And it's one of the reasons why I'm here at Clark Hill is because you need to have a different approach in order to pricing legal and real estate services. Uh, You need to have a different approach to delivering real estate services in a fast, efficient way through um, workflow management. And you need to have a better way to get quality rather than just rely on a a single uh, expertise paradigm. But anyway, enough about the legal services. I wanted to get to KIG CRE and the interesting things that they are doing. I just have to note that Clark Hill is uh, produced, or this podcast is produced by Clark Hill, which is a a member with the firm, which is a multidisciplinary international law firm that has uh, 25 offices across the United States and offices in Dublin, Ireland, and Mexico City. Um, Without any further... I I should always mention that if you want to get in touch with me, I'm always willing to listen to ideas. My email address is pcoover at clarkhill.com, and uh, my information is on the website. So I'm always willing to listen to ideas for topics for this podcast and uh, just to talk talk shop about real estate. So feel free to reach out to me. Coming up next, Todd Stofflet of KIG. Thanks so much. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I am your host, Phil Coover of Clark Hill, and today I'm with Todd Stofflet of KIG CRE. Todd, thank you for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Todd, it was first uh, drawn to my attention, your company. There was an article in BizNow about a year ago that... I should have the quote, but the, the, the effect, the general statement was that this is a new way of doing things for in the real estate business. And uh, t- tell us a little bit about KIG. 
Sure, uh, absolutely. Myself and my partners uh, built KIG uh, a little over four years ago now. Um, my background is in brokerage, and I've worked for you know some of the larger groups uh, in the country, whether that be Hendricks and Partners or ARA, and you know really started to realize that there was a different way to to do brokerage that was more than a cap rate and a pro forma, but actually uh, using real data to give our clients better information to make better decisions. Uh, so we decided to build KIG and, uh, you know, with an emphasis on kind of data-driven information in our brokerage services. And so we've done about a billion and a half dollars in our, our first four years, um, have about uh, 11 people in the office, three main salespeople, and are competing here in Chicago on an institutional basis against, you know, large organizations like CBRE and H. What kind of assets are you usually are you brokering? Uh, mainly, we're doing larger institutional product, uh, but we are lucky enough to uh, also kind of do um, different deals, whether it be redevelopment, uh, joint venture opportunities. Uh, one of our last deals we did was an $80 million deal where we represented Steadfast Companies, which was a private REIT out of California, uh, and we sold that asset to a joint venture between Marquette Companies here locally and J.P. Morgan, um, and that was a 579 unit value add uh, in uh, in the suburbs of Chicago. What markets are you focused on? Uh, our primary markets are, you know, we're Chicago based, but uh, we're Midwest focused. So we'll be bringing out product in Madison, Wisconsin this quarter. We're finishing up a deal in Indianapolis. So, you know, depending on our client and relationship, you know, we tend to deal in the six states that are the Midwest. So you said uh, data-driven analysis, and that's that's one of the things that's very interesting to me is uh, the da- the data-driven analysis, and what separates you from the rest of the pack as to uh, to getting that data and to providing it to your your clients. Sure, I think what we found was that you know as technology has uh, increased in not only our business but in in business in general, there's a lot more open data open source data out there that mm-hmm. you can plug into. Cook County, uh, as an example, is a really great open uh, source data situation for us to be able to pull, you know, kind of real-time uh, information on taxes and ownership and things like this. So we started to utilize that data and then also uh, realized that demographic trends, uh, renter trends, all these things were starting to become very important to our clients. Um, for that, aspect we actually hired an, an in-house data scientist I think we're the first group you know, multifamily group that has a, a data scientist on staff and and his whole job is to try and look at uh, different types of data different sources of data and create product that is uh, tailored to our individual client and even within the client individual people um, you know our asset managers look for product differently than kind of a C-suite level uh, information. And so we're constantly looking at ways that we can use, whether it be you know, kind of demographic data, uh, renter trend data, uh, or you know, kind of tax data that, that will help our clients make better decisions. Uh, in, in addition, we brought in a market analytics um, person that does nothing but uh, understand what's going on within the multifamily market in Chicago. And so we are getting direct 
access data from every major um, uh, management company in Chicago uh, and in real time. So we are actually getting weekly reports as to occupancy, uh, rent rates, rent per square foot that we can use to uh, track and trend uh, individual sub- submarkets within Chicago too. So well, That's awesome that you're getting the information from the management companies. Do you have just personal relationships with these management companies? You reach out to them and tell them that you're putting this this information together or how do you go about getting it? Sure, yeah, I mean, we were very lucky early on. Uh, one of our partners actually started in property management and worked for a couple of the larger firms uh, in Chicago, developed a bunch of relationships within the management field and we were able to kind of capture that, um, you know, those relationships early and then having a dedicated person who is, you know, calling upon these managers and calling upon these assets has really created dynamic relationships for for us. Um, in addition, we share all of our product. Um, and so, you know, if, uh, you know, if the guys at Graystar need some product or some information um, as it relates to either an asset they're running after for a management uh, assignment or something that they're doing for new development, you know, we can share that, that data with them and tailor product for them as well. So it's been a really nice relationship as, you know, they're giving us data for the, the you know, the multifamily deals that they manage within Chicago, then we can also supplement that with giving them kind of the whole submarket once we get it. So it's really been a, a nice uh, kind of dichotomy amongst the management groups because they're all getting information that they may not have received prior. Um, so it's just worked out well, I think, for everybody. Yeah. Uh, as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking I'm going to go big picture on you about running a business. And what I look businesses and people can do this too. You can either have short-term approaches or long-term approaches, especially the owners of businesses when they're trying to look at profit margin because the owners are the ones who are most interested in the profit margin. And you can either take uh, a short-term approach where you want to keep your costs down and that way everything that's profit in excess of, of, um, of costs goes to the partners, or you can do a long-term approach and you can invest more of your resources rather than take things off the table. And what I love about what you're doing is you're investing in a data scientist and you're investing in market analysts um, and you're investing in those people that that don't have a direct, they're not out there making a brokerage commission, but what you're doing is you're spending your resources to give better information to your clients. And it's, I'm sure it's going to work out very well for, for KIG long-term and for your clients. And it's going to be mutually beneficial. I just, that's what's so impressive to me um, about doing it that way is because you're investing in those resources in order to have, for years, you're going to have this great information. It's going to be what, what, how you try to separate yourself from the pack because there's a lot of brokers out there and um Anyway, that's just a, no, an thank observation yeah, no, that I had. It was very important, and, and lucky, luckily we have a very great investors and, and partners in KIG, and, and we knew that the things that we were doing were transformative uh, to the industry. You know, we were doing things that you know uh, the CB or an HFF had not done before, and and for us initially, because we were boutique and a startup, it was a way for us to differentiate ourselves. But what we realized very early is that it was it was 
part of changing the industry. And the industry is looking at things differently than it did five years ago. And I think we'll continue to do so. You know, the real estate industry, at least the commercial industry, is really changing very quickly. You know, we, we went from uh, very, you know, block and tackling kind of uh, brokerage to now more uh, of a advisory situation where we're not looking at, you know, selling one asset for a client. We're looking at their portfolio as a whole and trying to determine what assets are doing well for them, what assets may be time to be sold, what kind of acquisitions they should do to kind of blend the portfolio. So we're no longer just, you know, kind of a, as much as we are still kind of a fee oriented uh, industry, we are doing a lot more of an advisory uh, position than we would have done five years ago. And I think all those resources are very important to have as you're trying to talk about not just Chicago, but Midwest, regional, national, um, and what trends are going on. And so I think having those resources, not only locally, but uh, on a bigger perspective is, is very helpful for our clients. Certainly. It kind of reminds me there's a scene in Moneyball when they're looking at the <laughs> old um, agents who are used to analyze uh, scouts, so, name slip, word slipped my mind for a second. It's kind of the old scouts versus the new scouts. Yep. Uh, who just the scouts are out there. They see a good property. It's a good location, 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 location. Versus the new scouts who are doing things on an analytics basis. Um, you know, I think what draws me to that is I think that there's a same shift in the practice of law going on. I think we're probably a few years behind the practice of real estate in some industries are light years ahead and they've already fully switched over uh but i think you know that that's one of the things that drew me to having you on the on the podcast today is because um you know i'm trying and uh this is one of the reasons why i'm interested in clark hills because i think they're very forward thinking and investing in and they have um IT on staff and people that are capable. I think analytics will be one thing that the legal profession looks for. And sorry to sidetrack you on this, but yeah, just, no. we're just talking. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I, one way the legal profession can improve is just through technology. And one of my partners, Chad Poznanski, you know, he had this idea about having a dashboard for all of our clients to do a lot of real estate deals. And the dashboard would be a better, much better version of Dropbox, where right now people just share information and dump documents in there, but the dashboard would say, all right, here's your data contract. Here's when everything is going to be due. Here's our targeted closing date. You know, you click on a, a box and say, here's all your documents. Here's your files. That's how you're going to upload things. And that way there'd be something to check. So if the client wanted to know what was going on with their transaction, they could, they could see what's going on with their transaction. And the, you know, over the phone, you could have a mutual discussion or you're both looking at something to see where something's going. I also think that a database and technology could be applied to a shopping center, an office building, you're trying to manage 40 different tenants. Um, so, you know, some of these things are coming, some of these things are here, some of these things are on the way, but uh, it's just refreshing to see people that are already doing How'd you find the data scientist? Uh, we actually uh, were lucky enough to have some people that knew uh, a, a couple groups, a couple guys, uh, and interviewed and just really, you know, found this person to be in particularly very 
intuitive. Um, and you know, the great thing is like for us, we only hired, we probably hired about 20% of our staff from in industry. Um, everyone else, whether it be our marketing director, uh, social uh, marketing, or even our data scientists, all are out of industry. So there was no preconception of how real estate was to be sold. Yeah, uh, they, they didn't have right. the idea, okay, well, we have to do it this way because that's how real estate is done. Instead, they come to the table with all these great ideas that you're like, oh, I wouldn't have never thought of that about how to maybe market this asset or, you know, think about um, demographics in West Loop, you know, with what's going on with McDonald's or, or whatever the, the thought process may be. And so, you know, a great thing for us is we have these kind of monthly lunches or breakfasts or whatever we manage to put together. And it's just a free thinking hour and a half where we let our team just kind of talk about things that they're seeing out there and, and things that they're doing. They're a younger group. Most of them, 90% of them are millennials. And so we also get that perspective of, you know, kind of what what's coming next? You know, what, what's important? Are you going to buy a house? Are you going to have kids? Are you, you know, are you going to change your renter preferences because of, um, you know, because it's getting too expensive? You know, these sorts of things where we can actually look at our own data set within our group and kind of determine what what ideas might be coming and how we look towards the future and, and how we you know how what kind of data will help as we're looking forward we have a, a client who's looking they have an asset in the gold coast right now and they ask us to look at kind of future demographics because they're worried about um, you know given the age you know kind of average age of gold coast and you know that tenant profile baby boomers pretty much uh, the big majority of that uh, uh, of that submarket you know as they grow older and as they tend to move on what kind of demographic is going to move in and what do they want to look for and how are we going to change our buildings in order to accommodate a tenant like that um, and so we've been doing some work to, to that effect so there's a lot of those types of ideas out there that I don't think that anybody would have talked about five years ago as it relates to kind of real estate and portfolios yeah, yeah. right uh, you're kind of striking on a topic that I've been debating with my friends so I'm just curious to have your thoughts on it but um, one thing that we, we were talking about is right now the past few years people talked about the millennials love being in the city and i'm i think i'm technically a millennial even though i don't i don't brand myself or think of myself that way and versus the suburbs and my theory is that one of my friends is adamant that the millennial generation will forever love the cities and they'll forever stay in the cities and, and rent apartments or buy condos and I think millennials statistically are a bigger generation than even baby boomers are the biggest generation we have and I think the ones that they get to their mid-30s and they start having kids statistically of course we're talking about statistics not every person there uh, that more of them will find that cities are very expensive for children and mm-hmm. you need sometimes you need more space where there's school and there's other factors and that eventually they will find their way to the suburbs and homes will be purchased and sort of there will be not a massive flip but there will be an adjustment where instead of all the high rises that are being built maybe some of the at least inner ring um, suburbs will be filled out but I don't know what are your thoughts on that uh, I mean you know the millennial population is an interesting one um, you know two thirds of them haven't saved a dollar um, so, you know, there is not necessarily a thought process about, okay, I'm going to save for a house. Uh, I'm going to save to move to the suburbs. You know, they are very, um, 
they're very they're, they're living day to day as it relates to finances right now. A lot of them have a ton of student debt that they're trying to pay down, uh, but for the most part, um, you know, the younger millennials have no concept of of buying a home. You know, some of them went through uh, you know the recession with their parents and you know the loss of uh, of equity in in single family at that point. So you know they're very they're a very user conscious. Um, um, kind of demographic. But I, I agree. I don't think that that will last forever. I think at some point everybody has to grow up and decide what they want to do. And, you know, I think that includes, you know, you know, can you stay in the city? Can you afford to stay in the city? Are the schools what you want them to be for your children in the city? Or do you need to go to kind of outer ring neighborhoods or outer ring, you know, or inner ring suburbs like an Oak Park or something like that, where you're still able to get into the city quickly because you're probably still going to work here. Um, but not necessarily have to pay the $4 rent uh, in a school district that may not be exactly what you want. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that how that works, whether they go to those areas and rent, uh, whether that be a single family mm-hmm. home or a town home or even an apartment. Right. Um, we're starting to see institutional groups that are compiling single family Portfolios uh, that are fully rental and actually, you know, um, are selling those portfolios as one rental community, uh, even though it's you know a hundred or two hundred single-family homes. Um, so it'll be interesting to see I've if that, that too. Yeah, yeah, if that continues or you know I don't know how it doesn't look like at least the agencies are getting comfortable with that kind of lending. Uh, <laughs> Freddie Mac has pulled back on that pretty substantially. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if you can execute uh, transactions that way or if it just is kind of a little bit of a fad. That's interesting. Yeah, in my my discussions with my my friends, I didn't think of the savings aspect and just statistically and how that plays into uh, you know the requirement what you need in order to purchase and yeah having being able to rent single family homes is another alternative out in the suburbs and it's always been an alternative but a more prevalent one yeah yeah and i mean you know the other interesting thing is what we found uh from the baby boomer generation is a lot of them are staying close to where they have been historically so you know, the, the initial thesis was you're gonna sell the big house and you know the suburbs move downtown and maybe buy a second house somewhere or travel or whatever that is but the data is showing us that less than one percent of all baby boomers are one percenters a uh, significant amount of the baby boomer population is not worth a lot you know ten to twenty thousand dollars in net worth and so those you know that demographic is really going to have to stay where they are or actually move to more affordable housing as they grow older and so you're seeing a lot of the baby boomer population you know they may be selling that house because there's finally some equity back in it but they're going to rent locally close to their church close to their country club close to their friends Um, so the influx of you know kind of that generation into major city cores is not happening as we i think initially expected it to so it's kind of curious though you may have you know additional um demographics going into the suburbs as well and then you know you have a millennial and and a baby boomer living next to each other so that'll be interesting we'll see how that works right exactly um so you're aggregating this data you have the data scientists uh how are you getting it to your clients you have um tell us about your your state of the multifamily market 
Sure. Um, so we do an annual report for Chicagoland, and, and it really is kind of a state of how Chicago is acting as a, as a multifamily market. Um, we do a lot of analytics as it relates to you know, transaction volume, uh, sales, demographics, rent, um, just to give everybody a good perspective of how Chicago's working. You know, we're looking at taxes, we're looking at crime, we're looking at, you know, all the things that make the newspapers, whether they be right or wrong, um, and try and give a good perspective of how the multifamily market is is in Chicago. Um, and this is a piece that we start working on, well, we just started working on about two weeks ago, um, that will be ready in November. And, and it really is a piece that we can go and give to our institutional clients as they're trying to continue to determine whether they want to invest more in Chicago, stay investors in Chicago, and and why is Chicago a good place to invest. So there's a lot of comparison going on with other major markets, whether that be, you know, the you know, markets that we compare with a lot, whether it be in New York, LA, San Francisco, or up and coming markets like in Austin or Charlotte that we start to see people investing in and give them real time kind of just comparisons to how those markets are working in different different types of, of data. When money comes in or investors coming in from outside Chicago, what do you tell them is the hottest area right now to invest in, or or what do you think? What do you, what do you tell them? Yeah, is just the the hottest area. Like, and then I'll ask you which. What do you think is the best area to invest sure. in? Sure. Well, I mean, it's funny because I think everybody that is looking at Chicago right now likes the West Loop, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it has explosive, you know, been very explosive not only in you know office uh, but multifamily and and everybody believes with McDonald's moving downtown that that's really the place to be it's kind of the you know feels like Soho a little bit but you know rents are growing uh, you know they had the first four dollar rent in Chicago uh, in the West Loop at a, a apartment complex called M uh, which is a new delivery recently and so you know I think if you're an outside investor if you're looking at Chicago you automatically go to West Loop and, and I think there's a lot of great dynamics going on um, um, in the West Loop, they're young uh, from a multifamily market. You know, and up until recently, there hasn't been a lot of development allowed uh, in the West Loop, and now we're seeing significant amount of product uh, either being approved or or breaking ground. Um, so it, it's it's kind of in its infancy as it relates to you know how the multifamily will work there. Uh, but I do think that. The you know kind of the, the, the matrix there is strong, uh, given you know work and um, you know kind of retail and and then adding the multifamily component to it. So if you're an outside investor, that's what you're going to say. I want West Loop. Um, in reality, um, there are other kind of submarkets within Chicago that are doing better. Um, you look mm-hmm. at River North, which I think everybody believed was going to be a bloodbath with the amount of deliveries that happened all at once. I mean, delivered three thousand units within a block of each other at the same time and everybody was you know screaming concessions and you know occupancy loss and things like that and and what we're finding is it's it's been very resilient um you know some of the highest occupancies in the city uh you know concessions burned off very quickly once um you know these new units were absorbed and now um you really don't have a lot of new construction going on in river north so i think long term that market will be very strong 
the only issue will be, and, and one of the things that our data group is looking at right now, is what happens when all the multifamily comes up in the West Loop. Will you have an exodus out of River North going into the new product in West Loop, and, and who will fill that hole? And so we're actually tracking, uh, starting to track kind of renter movement within different submarkets. So you know, if you have a um, a tenant that's you know living in River North, may have started in Streeterville and is now moving to West Loop, we're starting to kind of track that movement so we can kind of see where people are moving within uh, the city of Chicago given you know kind of over time so we've been tracking that for about 18 months that is super um, interesting how are you tracking that like utility bills we are we're actually uh, our friends in management again are, okay. are really great because they have all the data um, so we're kind of you know we're looking at where their tenants are coming from and where their tenants are going uh, from an kind of an exit interview standpoint um, and then you know kind of we're kind of trying to blind it out so that you're not it's not like oh you're going from you know 111 to uh, Marlowe or something like that you know it's more like okay I've got people going from loop to West Loop or loop to Streeterville and, and kind of what those numbers look like to just kind of see what patterns we're seeing okay because I knew so, that GPS in my iPhone was going somewhere <laughs> yeah, right right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah it used to be on the uh, the former plan I don't know if it's still the plan but it used to be you know Lakeshore East Wicker Park Lincoln Square mm-hmm. suburb that's, yep. that's how I rolled it. And uh, th- I've talked to a lot of people that I meet out in the suburbs and they, they were on a similar plan. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, historically everybody knew Chicagoans were always kind of loop or Lakeshore East based just because it was easy. They knew where it was, it was close to work. And then they kind of figured out what their identity was and, and what those those neighborhoods were and where they wanted to be. What we're seeing now, which is really interesting, is, you know, it used to be you were very neighborhood centric. Like, I live in Wicker Park. I love Wicker Park. You know, I'm going to be in Wicker Park until I move to the suburbs. We're not seeing that as much now. Um, We're seeing a lot of people that are going from Loop to, you know, near West or somebody who's going from Streeterville up to Uptown. Um, You know, some of that dynamic is obviously cost, uh, but also is, uh, I think, that the, the demographic of the tenant is a lot more mobile and so they you know they're kind of chasing uh the deal you know that's out there whether it be the concession or you know they're chasing the location or they want to be close to train because maybe they're a consultant so they need to be close to the blue line etc so there's a lot more movement within the the demographic or the tenant pro tenant demographic than we'd seen before so how's the south loop doing i mean the south loop um it's got a lot of deliveries and I think if you ask anybody you know as to absorption and concessions it's probably the one submarket that we are keeping our eye on for that just because there's so many large developments that are going to be delivered um, and historically South Loop has been kind of the um, you know, kind of the affordable alternative to some of the other submarkets, whether that be Loop or Streeter or even River North. It's not the case anymore. A lot of these new new deliveries are pushing rents uh, close to you know Loop and and River North pricing. So um, it'll be interesting to see how the absorption goes on all these units because there is a significant amount. Yeah, you can see right out of here. You can yeah. see all the cranes up down on the south side. Yep. Um, I wanted to talk just like more regionally. I know you, I've seen on your website. I know you all are in other states in the Midwest. Uh, when somebody comes to you that's an institutional investor, um, how do you 
go about helping them evaluate what city they want to invest in? Sure. I mean, um, if you're truly kind of an institutional investor investing in major markets, uh, you know, a secondary market like Indianapolis or Louisville or uh, Milwaukee, you know, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive to begin with. Um, it just because the only reason that money would go there would be for yield. Um, and in this cycle, we've compressed cap rates in Indianapolis and Louisville down very close to major markets like Chicago. Okay. Um, so, you know, a lot of the investing that's going on in secondary markets are kind of regional owner operators um, and not a lot of institutional money going out. We have a lot of institutional debt uh, in those markets in New York Life. You know, some of these other life companies really like that. Um, that idea a lot because they are getting a little bit better yield down there. Um, as we mature into this cycle, I think we will absolutely see those cap rates expand a lot quicker than major markets. This tends to be what happens as uh, institutional capital starts to pull back, as debt starts to pull back from secondary markets and back to true core locations. Um, we'll start to see cap rates uh, expand rather quickly. And so I think that's really the opportunity for uh, not only institutional investors, but pretty much anybody who's who's looking at you know some of these secondary markets as as those cap rates start to expand, those markets, at least in this cycle, have become uh, extremely healthy, um, very diverse in um, not only, you know, kind of employment, but uh, types of jobs there. And so, you know, you look at Indy, you look at Louisville, they're, they're really nice alternatives for investment and we've had a really nice development cycle there so there's new product to invest in as well so i think you know 1920 we'll see some more opportunities for you know larger investment in secondary markets with a nice spread in cap rate it also seems like and again i'm just going to be talking anecdotal and i'm talking to the uh, the the analyst team here but uh that these some of these secondary market cities like nashville austin denver uh indianapolis they they have a lot of I would say millennial generation people that are interested in pursuing careers there, cheaper cost of living. Yet at the same time, it seems like they're all starting to come up in terms of having interesting entertainment, higher quality food. They're providing more to service that generation. Um, do you? How are you looking at sort of those demographic changes and? How does yeah. that apply? Uh, I mean, it's really interesting if you look at like a Columbus, Ohio or an Indianapolis, uh, you know, last cycle, the downtown was pretty much dead. You know, you had a bunch of big malls and a bunch of, uh, you know, kind of older office that was just obsolete. And, you know, everybody had kind of gone from, you know, city core into the suburban locations. And so, you know, you look at downtown Columbus or downtown Indy, it was, it was vacant. It was, you know, not anywhere that anybody wanted to live. What we've seen in this cycle, and, and thanks to our developers, whether they're reusing or actually using new construction, but they've rebuilt these downtowns and they're trying to turn them into, you know, 18 hour cities mm -hmm. where, you know, you can go down, live, work, play downtown, uh, which is, which is new for any of these. And so you've had a lot of people kind of importing back into the downtown core in these markets. And 
it, along with that, you have a kind of a younger demographic who, again, as you said, is is there because it's it's more cost efficient than coming to a Chicago or a New York or an LA. Um, a lot of those people are from there, uh, so they're coming back. You know, they may spend a stint in Chicago or New York and be like, "Well, I want to go back and raise a family," um, and so they're going back, and they still get that kind of urban suburban kind of feel in some of the downtown areas. So. We've really seen kind of a reemergence of that that downtown market in the secondary markets, which has been great. And most of it's rental. Um, you know, there there is a little bit of for sale product, but you know, the Midwest from a for sale standpoint has been lagging the rest of the nation just because we were hit so hard in the recession as it relates to single family or you know condominium. Um, Chicago is one of the few markets in you know in the country that has yet to really see an, a reemergence of their condo market. Um, all right, so where should I, where would you tell people not to invest? What do you, what area or segment, whether it's a city or a subset of Chicago, what, area concerns you? Um, You know, I think we're creating some uh, legislative concerns as it relates to development um, right now that I think will be prohibitive for investment. Um, You look at some of the pilot programs that are going for the affordable um, ordinance uh, along Milwaukee with, you know, significant amount of requirements for affordability. Those areas are going to be very hard to invest in from a development standpoint, just because the the, the numbers don't work. They don't pencil out when you you try and put the cost of building a building and having that many units in an affordable program. I think you could talk to a lot of our developers, and they'll tell you that, that it's just not working. Um, so that's going to lead people either to no longer develop in those areas or look elsewhere to do their development that's outside of these pilot programs. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting you bring that up. I was just looking at that last night, actually. Uh, and I don't, I'm learning more about it, and by no means am I going to try to explain all the legal concepts here. But for the listeners, what some of what Todd's referring to is that there are areas in Chicago that have to meet certain affordability requirements in order to build there. And what that means is they have to have a certain amount of units in the building that meets requirements. And there's a schedule and there's tables that the city of Chicago has. And so when people are analyzing how much revenue they can generate off a building, they have to factor in that they have to keep a certain amount of those units at a certain level in order to uh, to not run afoul of the city's requirements. And so that leads you to what Todd's point here, which is uh, sometimes it just doesn't work. You can't make the numbers work. Right. And I think what people are may not know is a majority of the product that was built in this cycle was kind of um, old ARO. So it was pre-existing ARO that had been approved. And you know, so they were building, as we would say, as of right. They didn't have to go back in for a zoning change or, or you know, they had been uh, approved prior to some of these new ordinances. And so I think if you look moving forward, forward, which is different than a lot of our other markets with, you know, within the country, um, we're going to see a sizable reduction in the amount of new development going on in Chicago in 19 and 20 because of some of these ordinances versus a, a Denver or a Nashville where those are, are not an issue. So, you know, as people talk about us having too many 
new developments. It, it really is we front loaded a lot of that product. Um, and mm-hmm. now that we're still in, you know, plus 90% occupancy, it bodes very well for Chicago in the future, just from a, from a multifamily standpoint. So, Very interesting. How about cities? Where did you not invest? Um, you know, it's interesting. There are, I, I look at uh, new development is a, a really good indicator of where a market's going to go that coupled with where they are in rent growth and rent per square foot and there are multiple markets that a lot of our investors are looking at uh, some in Texas um, you know Nashville as well where there's a significant amount of new construction uh, rent growth is either flat or already going negative um, and you know rent per square foot is barely making new construction pencil out those markets are are concerning to me. Even though you have really great demographic data, uh, at some point uh, there's going to just be too much product, and and that's where you really start to see concessions come into play and and deals not necessarily working the way they should. Yeah, I think that there's actually just a, an article in BizNow two days ago about about just exactly what you're saying. Well, Todd, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you have to get to that really exciting development uh, out of the Northwest (laughs) side. So I really appreciate you coming in. Is there anything else that the listeners should know about getting in contact with you, getting access to your information? yeah, I mean, we provide a lot of our product uh, on our website at uh, kigcre.com. Um, you know, whether that be a state of the market or, or any of our other special projects, as well as uh, our inventory of, of things for sale. Um, if anybody has a special request or a special project, they can reach out to me directly and, and we'll get them to the right place for that. So. Todd, thank you so much for coming down today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice, and no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill, PLC. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests and not necessarily Clark Hill PLC.